Welcome to podcasts recorded live at the Center for Spiritual Living in Portland, Oregon. Listen past the end of the podcast to find out more about our spiritual center and ways that you may collaborate with us. Happy Sunday, everyone. So um, we've embarked upon a little journey this month. We're using uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's The Art of Communicating for Inspiration. And uh, week one, we talked about deep listening, that if we're willing to really pay attention, to really listen to what's going on, oh my gosh, what a difference it can make in our communication. Last week, we talked about the idea of loving conversation, of loving communication, that when we, from the get-go, have intentions that a conversation is going to go well, is going to be based in love, that that too can make a really big difference. Uh... This week, we're going to talk about the rest of it. (laughs) This week, we're going to discover that sometimes our best intentions go haywire. That sometimes our most loving intentions for conversation, when when we're faced with uh, times of trouble or or, or times of, uh, of heated argument, that sometimes all of those good intentions can actually go out the window. And we're going to talk about what to do when that happens. I'm going to start with a quote from The Art of Communicating. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. He says, one reason that we have trouble communicating with others is that we often try to communicate when we get angry. We're suffering, we're we're misunderstood, and we don't want to be alone with all that trouble. We believe that we are angry because something others did happen to us, and we want them to know about it. Anger has urgency to it. We want to let others know right away what the problem with them is. But when we're angry, we're also not lucid. Acting while angry can escalate the situation. But with practice, it is possible to feel and engage with our anger in a healthy and still compassionate manner. So that's what we're going to work on today. Uh, But you know me, I also like to do a little bit of research um, besides just the material that we have. And I wanted to really find out a little bit more about this anger reflex, this idea of of a sudden rage coming upon us. And and I'm sure we've all experienced this before. Sometimes a very little thing or or a seemingly even out of context harsh word or judgment against us, sometimes don't you just feel like spitting? Don't you just feel like raising your dukes and punching them out? I remember there were some meetings when I used to work at the telephone company. You know, here would be a meeting of nice, reasonable people, and after about 15 minutes, I was like, just want to knock a few people down. Well, the reason that that exists in us, believe it or not, is due to brain science. There's a part of our brain, the, a part of our limbic system that is anchored in the ancient, most ancient times when literally in a split second we had to know whether to put up our dukes and fight to save ourselves or whether just to, to make a line for, you know, down the way, just flee, get the heck out of there. And that part of our brain is actually wired in such a way that it trips without us even having to be aware of it. It actually happens in like a, you know, one of those fractions of a second. And, and uh, well, in fact, here, let me try this one for size for you. Have you ever woken up from a sound sleep suddenly on complete alert? 
All of your senses heightened, straining for, was there a noise that woke me up? Did something happen? Did something go by the window? Was there a rustling? Some of us who are uh, new parents have, have done the reverse too, right? It's like, wait a minute, can I hear the baby? Was the baby crying? And suddenly it's like we're jazzed up. We're ready just to leap out of bed. That's that system at work. And what's interesting about it is it's at work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even when we're sleeping. And it's doing all of the filtering from our senses. And so as an example, that night when you woke up and with the, you know, the sense of urgency and something's got to happen, it could have been as simple as this filter mechanism noticing that there was kind of a creak that's like the creak of someone coming up the steps, right? Middle of the night, no one should be coming up your steps. You heard that noise, and even though you may have been dreaming or something else going on in your head, suddenly you were on full alert for an intruder. The system is that fine-tuned and that um, delicate it's no wonder that sometimes it sends us off into a, a craziness of, of anger or fear or other things when it's not even warranted to. And that's what I want to talk a, a little bit about. Because there's actually nothing you can do about that part of it. When I used to get kind of mad at people, I used to think, well, Larry, you know, that's, you know, not very spiritual of you. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like you're having a nice, friendly conversation, and then the, the conversation kind of takes a left turn, and all of a sudden you're like, <laughs> right? I used to think, well, this isn't very evolved of me. What's wrong with me? But the truth is, we're all that way to varying degrees, and that part of our brain simply ensures that we have that heightened ability to protect ourselves. And in fact, they have discovered that there, there are a few people that either through injury or other means have lost this part of their brain. The amygdala, am I saying it right? Amygdala, okay. Uh, have actually lost or injured this part of their brain. And you know what? they no longer appropriately process fear responses. It would be like you, you know, you're walking across a max train and you look up and you go, oh, I see the trains coming this way. Oh, yes. And I even hear the, the noise of the clang, clang, clang coming. And oh, thank heavens I have depth perception. Just a minute. Yeah, I can kind of calculate how fast it's coming towards me. And oh, shit. <laughs> With our amygdala, we simply leap out of the way. We don't have to think about it. There's no processing to do. Literally, this ancient part of our brain saves our bacon. And we have no control over it. So next time you feel just like fleeing the, the heck out of someplace, next time you feel unreasonably angry because something, uh, someone said something to you or something came up, you're not crazy. You're, you're no different than anyone else. That's that part of our brain. It may not make sense in the moment, right? It isn't like your, you know, your, your husband or your work partner really is going to kill you or endanger you. But still, that, part of, that ancient part of your brain gets involved and it starts shooting the most deadly set of chemicals through your body that you can imagine. It puts cortisol, it ferments, it puts t testosterone, it, it, it puts uh, uh, adrenaline in your system to where literally you are hopped up and there's nothing you can do about it. It actually just has to physically process its way through the system. 
Now, the good news is our neocortex, the more evolved part of our brain, can actually begin taking over some of the processing of our brain. But you know what? It takes a little bit of time. We don't immediately begin thinking of more reasonable ways or reasonable approaches. It actually can take a couple minutes before our neocortex even becomes involved at all. So for a couple minutes, we're totally in that place of, of being in the passion, of being bizarrely angry or bizarrely sad or, or whatever it might be, and we just need to be aware of that. And what Thich Nhat Hanh says is, even as adults, we all need to be able to take a time out. The chances of us, especially when that, that amazing soup of uh, 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 that high of, uh, of anger and fear is in us, the chance of us being able to reasonably talk out what's going on, oh my gosh, it approaches zero. There's almost no way that we can put aside that fear response or that rage response, whatever's going on in us, and have a healthy conversation. So it's not surprising when, when couples or coworkers get into kind of a little bit of a verbal fight. It's not surprising that they're, they're kind of doing the one-up thing, right? Because that's what their body is actually suggesting that they do with the cortisol and, and, and especially uh, uh, with the, the amount of adrenaline going in our system. We're like, we're like crazy on the edge of our seat wanting to spoil for a fight is what our body is saying. And so it takes an amazing amount of self-control. Congratulations, everyone here who manages to not lose their temper because the gem of it, the seed of it is there in all of us to lose our temper. And when that happens, in order to regain a, a good footing, to be able to process more, more reasonably, to come up with a good uh, compromise if something needs to be worked out, or to renegotiate, or whatever needs to happen, we need to be in that place of calmness. And so a timeout is, uh, is indicated. You know, I used to do, in my 12-step work, I used to, to take on uh, folks now and then as a sponsor, and I still remember um, this young man who in a way, didn't really want to be sober. He just wanted to be able to control his drinking. And I think that for some of us around anger issues, around this, this idea of, uh, uh, of getting into verbal fights and things like that, I think we don't really want to give that up. Instead, we want to somehow make it be useful. I want to fight the good fight. I want to, it's okay. Why shouldn't we be able to yell each other as long as we make some progress? As long as in the end of the day, you know, someone prevails. Why not just duke it out verbally? No one's going to get hurt. But I'm here to tell you, I'll tell you what I told that young gentleman. It's like when that when that adrenaline soup is going on you, you can't do it. When you're drinking, you can't drink responsibly because you're already high. And that's the trouble with this. We really can't somehow switch off those chemicals in a way. We just have to wait until we're sober again. There isn't a way really of having the good fight, if you mean a fight that's productive, if you mean a, a verbal encounter that's, uh, that's going to come to some resolution that will be lasting and honoring of each other, you can't do it when you're drugged out on the stress chemicals. You just can't do it. Now, for 
those of us who know ourselves fairly well, the good news is we already kind of have a sense of how long it will take, don't we? We already kind of have a sense of, well, yeah, that was kind of like one of those little arguments that I'll be over it in, in an hour or so. You know, my mom used to say, before you say anything, if you're pissed off, count to 10. Well, that works for some people, you know, literally some of us and in about 10 seconds, our neocortex can be involved and the, the adrenaline rush is starting to dissipate. And for some of us, maybe we can engage after a minute or a couple minutes and that's cool. But I also know there are a whole lot of us that need to sleep on it. I remember my one grandmother used to say, I think we better sleep on this one. And what she was really was saying was, I am so pissed off <laughs> that I need at least about 12 hours to myself to think about this. My father, on the other hand, he used to say, I just need to go for a walk. And, and he would walk away from the table or whatever it was, and he'd, he'd go outside in the fresh air, and I p can still picture him. He'd be like, <sighs> right? He'd be like allowing the chemical soup to process <laughs> through him, allowing the craziness to, to dissipate a little bit, and <sighs> he'd have that sense of calming down and lowering his blood pressure again. You are probably the only person in this room that really knows what you need to become sane again. But when you're super angry, when you're super scared, it's not like you're sane. You need that moment, you need that half hour, you need that three hours, you need that sleep on it, you need that 24 hours. Whatever you need, you need it. And to engage in the other person to try to think you're gonna figure this out before that time is up, probably not going to happen. You're probably going to say things that you regret. You're probably going to have an understanding that something less than the loving conversations we want to have. But you know what? There's something even worse than having a good old drag out verbal fight. Do you know what it is? Uh, let me uh, illustrate with a joke. So a man and his wife were having some problems at home. And after a name calling incident, they were giving each other the silent treatment. Now, as the evening wore on, the man realized the next day he really would appreciate his wife to wake him up at 5 a.m. for an early morning business flight. But he also did not want to be the first to break the silent treatment and, of course, lose the argument. So he wrote on a piece of paper, business trip, please wake me at 5 a.m., dear. And he left it where he knew she'd find it. Well, the next morning, the man woke up to discover it was after 9 a.m. and he'd missed his flight. He's furious. He wants to go and engage his wife, but he noticed a piece of paper by the bed. And the paper said, it's 5 a.m., honey, time to wake up. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, my parents actually got into very, very few fights. Now, I don't know whether they were saving the children for it and waited until I was asleep or what, but at our house, oh my God, did we have some chilly times. I still remember the one dinner I hate to even share it, it sounds so lame, but here we're sitting around the dining room table at night and it was reduced to things like, Larry, would you tell your mother to pass the peas? <laughs> Have <laughs> you ever had that happen? It's like, I'm so mad, I just can't even talk to her. <sighs> the silent treatment, believe it or not, all good counselors have discovered and, and, and through patterns of social behavior in couples and, and work partners and things like that, it has been shown that the silent treatment, believe it or not, is more dangerous 
than verbal arguments for the, for the length of uh, uh, the relationship. And so doing the silent treatment really is very harmful. What psychologists have shown is that when you give someone the cold shoulder or the silent treatment, what you're tentatively saying is, you're not even worth talking through this with. It's a total, it's, it, it's, a, it's a quiet way of saying, I'm totally dismissing you. You're not even worth a good argument. You're not even worth taking the time to figure out what we need to do. So please don't go the reverse and do the silent mode. It's actually worse for the, the long-term engagement of the relationship. Okay. So what can we do? How can we get out of this? If we end up in a situation where we're verbally fighting or there's a disagreement that has our our voices raged, when that uh, uh, amygdala is engaged and it's pouring that soup of craziness in us, what can we do about it? We take a time out. And the best way is to know ahead of time how much time you're likely to need. You know yourselves pretty darn well do you need 24 hours? Do you need three hours? Do you need a, a, a walk out in the clear air for a while? What do you need? And you actually schedule it. So here's the important part, because just walking away to cool off can be seen as what? It can be seen as the silent treatment. So you don't want to do that. You want to say something like, oh my gosh, I am so mad, I just feel like screaming. What if we get back together again and resume this conversation and then, you know, fill in the blank, you know, after dinner, after, you know, tomorrow morning or, you know, if, the ne- if you're at work at the next shift change or whatever, at, whatever a reasonable period of time so that you know the cortisol and, and the crazy making drugs have passed through your system and you'll be reasonable again. So perfectly fine. Schedule yourself Please schedule yourself a time out and and be clear about when you come back together because that engages the other person. It lets them know you do want to process this, that you do value their, uh, their take on things. You know, you're important to me. We will get this. I'm not avoiding you, um, but I need to cool off. For, for my own health, uh, for, the, uh, for actually the goodness of this conversation, I need to wait until the adrenaline has subsided. Let's get back together in two hours or in the morning or you know whatever it is to be safe. The next thing that you need to do is really, and in fact a good time to do it is during the timeout period, you need to begin really thinking about what's important to you. Because oftentimes your feelings have been damaged in particular, and it's not even about the issue anymore. Do you know what, a, do you know what I mean? We'll, we'll get engaged in the wanting to go knuckle to knuckle. We'll get engaged in the, well, he found nine things wrong with me. I'll find 12 things wrong with him kind of conversation. And suddenly it's not about the whatever it was about. Suddenly it's about getting even or, or whatever. So the next thing you need to do is really what's important here? What, need, you know, what was the disagreement about? How do we need to sort this out? What's important here? So that when you re-engage, you don't just go back into the button-pushing mode. You go back into a problem-solving mode. Instead of it being an issue about two people at war, then it's about two people that have something that actually needs to be solved, and you can approach it that way. The third thing that you need to do is to be thinking about 
a willingness to share how you feel. And that's back to the idea of what went on that was feeling versus what went on that needed to be resolved. Because oftentimes there's a tendency for us just to go, well, we need to figure out the thing. And we figured out the thing, but I'm still just as mad as I could be. And what do I do with that? And so it's actually important and useful when you re-engage in a, in a calm way to explain how you felt. You know, when you talk to me that way, it, in my head it sounded just like my mom treating me when I was seven years old. And I got to tell you, it couldn't have made me madder. You know, I'm sorry I blew up, but here's how I felt. And part of it was the interchange we were having. So, so actually acknowledging your feelings is an important thing to do. Not just the problem solving around what happened or the issue, but also problem solving around how your feelings were interacting with each other. Each of you gets a chance to say, you know, well, when I get treated that way, you know, here was how I reacted. Could we do that differently next time? Could we not call each other names? Because it reminds me of when I was seven and, you know, and in first grade, people called me names. And, and you know, you don't want to be having a conversation with an angry seven-year-old. <laughs> you want right? You want to be having a transaction, a conversation with someone who's their real age and has the, the process of, uh, of discrimination and the ability to understand what's going on in their head. So when people get reduced to, uh, you, you know, earlier times in their life because of emotional conflict, uh, that needs to be addressed as all as well. Uh, finally, Thich Nhat Hanh recommends focusing on the thing and not the person, because so often, right, what we get into is almost like a character assassination, and that's how he typifies it. Suddenly the, the discussion or the argument turns out about, well, how bad can I portray this person, not what happened. And oftentimes if we engage in the level of what happened, it's very easy to be problem solvers then. Oh my gosh, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the car wasn't maintained and, and so, you know, now it, it needs an extra tune-up and yes, we don't have the money, we can figure that out. But if instead the conversation goes, you're an idiot, you're supposed to keep track of that damn car, right? It's like, yikes, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to say, well, what about you in that darn kitchen? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's the invitation to pitch in when someone is targeting you as a person. If instead we talk about, oh my gosh, you're right. How should we figure out the best way to ensure that the car gets maintained? Then it's about the car and processes around the car and not pointing a finger at someone as being useless or negligent or something like that. Finally, what Thich Nhat Hanh says, and this one I think could be the most valuable to us. Remember last week we talked about some ideas around engaging people in a lovingly way. He says, if we come back from our time out ready to engage people with one of those loving mantras that we learned last week, it will set the tone for engaging in a very loving way. And he talked about three of them in particular, and I'm going to share them with you. So this sounds a little familiar from last week. This was in your notes from last week. The first one is, I'm suffering. Please help me. There is nothing more engaging to someone if you look them right in the eye and say, you know, I'm just really suffering. 
when we fight like this, it brings me down to where I just feel horrible. I'm really suffering here. Can you help me? Now notice I'm not saying, I'm suffering, please do it my way. <laughs> right? Because that would be coercive, <laughs> right? That would be the trying to use guilt to get your own way, right? I'm suffering here, please do what I want, and then I won't feel so bad. We don't want to go there. We want to honestly say, I'm really having trouble here. Please let us figure out a way to make this okay. I may have to change part of what I want to do. It may not be you get your way and I don't get my way. It may be a collaboration. But what is true is I'm suffering right now. Please help me work through this. Very engaging. If you do that with someone after you've had your cooling off period, from the get-go, the two of you are starting in at a place of peace, a place of problem-solving and learning about each other rather than a fight. The second one, very similar, just the flip side, I know you suffer and I'm here for you. It's also very powerful to say, I could see how worked up you were. I could see how angry you were. And I want you to know, you are so important to me that if it takes day and night, we will resolve this issue in a way that we can both live with and honor. Do you see how powerful that is? You're not saying anything about right and wrong. You're saying you matter so much to me that we will figure out how to make this right. And I'm up for it. I'll take the time for it. I'll take the energy for it because you are that important to me. The third one we laughed about last week, and I think you'll remember it. You are partly right. <laughs> remember laughing about that one a little bit? Now, it, taken out of context, this is a difficult one, of course, because if someone just blows up at you and is accusing you of things and things like that, remember, that's not the time to come back with these. It's after the timeout. It's after the cool-down portion of things. But when you do that, then to say you are partially right, well, of course, you'd pick different words, I'm sure, actually is an affirming thing. You can say something like, oh my gosh, after thinking about it, I can see why you were so upset. That's me saying you were partly right. After thinking about it, well, no wonder you thought I was a slovenly pig. I mean, I, I, haven't been, I haven't been very good at picking up after myself lately, right? You're saying you are partly right, and you're doing it in a very engaging way, and that is then the opening to discuss the other half of it, because <laughs> you were also partly wrong. But if you will admit your half of it, if you will own up to the fact that, you know, Almost every fight, part of what's going in back and forth is the truth, and that's why it hurts so much. It's one of the reasons why something that, that sounds a little bit like your mother or your father's voice coming at you can be so painful, right? Because often there was the, the grain of truth in that. I wasn't as good as I could have been. I didn't perform as well as I could have. I wasn't as loving as I might have been. All of those things will wound us deeply. And so... When we can get to the point of equanimity, when we can get rid of the stress hormones flooding through us, then it's actually okay and even welcome to talk about the fact that no one is to blame here, that both of you have a vision of reality that is partially right, 
and partially wrong. And there can be a willingness to talk about it. So I'm going to review really quickly and we'll finish up. So when the conversation heats up, you need to cool off. Can't think of a better way of saying it. It's time for adult timeouts. You're the only person that knows how long it takes, and it may vary depending upon who it is that you're engaged with or what's going on, but do your best guess at figuring out how long you're going to need to cool off a little bit and actually make an appointment of it. You know, this is an important issue. We really need to talk about raising this child in, in, a, in a way that we want to. We're at a disagreement here. I need a little bit of time to cool off and collect my thoughts, but let's get together in the morning. Let's make an actual appointment, and we'll figure this out because you're worth it to me. Do you see how reasonable that sounds and how diffusing that would be to someone who's, who's angry? The second thing, plan on your loving intentions. So once you've cooled down, start thinking about sharing your feelings, sharing what's important to you, the ability of, uh, of those loving intentions going in. You know, I'm here to support that other person as much as myself. We're in this together. We're in this for the long haul. I'm not here just to win this argument like it was a contest or something. I'm in this to have this relationship be productive and joyous for a long time. So that means when I see that we're both suffering, I engage from that position of what can we do for the two of us? And then finally, finally, let us in our renegotiations talk about behaviors and not be judging each other's characters. Talk about what needs to change and not implying that the other person needs to change. You're not going to change anybody. We covered that last week, right? <laughs> we are what we are. Other people are what they are. They may change. It may be in their desire and habit to change things. But if your whole conversation is pitched at saying, you as a person are wrong, you need to change, it's like, oh, that ain't going nowhere. It just isn't going to be useful. So instead, focus in on what needs to change, what needs to happen uh, that needs to be different so that both people, the entire uh, family, for instance, could be uh, well served. All right, I'm going to close with a, a tiny bit of homework, a quote, and a prayer. The homework is, what's your timeout plan? See, when we're in the middle of the soup, we're not going to figure it out. When those chemicals are working through us, the furthest thing on the planet from our mind is, what do I need to say to graciously ask for a timeout? Because you're like this, <laughs> right? You're like, if you're like me anyway, you're probably beat red. You're like, <gasps> right? If you're really mad, if you're really upset, if you're really fearful, that's not the time to think, oh, you know, a timeout could be useful. Let me think. Would it be five minutes? Would it be 15 minutes? So what I'd like you to do for homework this week is plan your timeout so that the next time you feel that, you're, you're already prepped, you're already ready just to say, uh, oh my gosh, I'm really feeling pissed off here. Let us do a little bit of a timeout. I really want to collect my thoughts. I know how important this is to you, how important it is to both of us. But what I really know is uh, when I'm calm and collected, we'll be able to address this in a way um, that's really powerful. And I'm fearful right now that I'll just go off the handle and say things um, that I might regret. So plan your time out. That's your homework for this week. I'm going to close with that quote and a prayer.
In long-term relationships, as in families or work partners, we often get in the habit of thinking that change just isn't possible any longer. We think that the other person should change, and they won't. So we give up hope. But we need to stop judging and return to our own internal communication. If we wait for our parents, if we wait for our coworkers, if we wait for our partners to change, it may simply never happen. So it's better that we change. Don't try to force the other person to change. Even if it takes a long time, we will feel better when we are the master of our own selves, the master of our own communications. Let us pray. There is one power and one presence. There is that overarching idea of love in this universe. And I know that it applies all to, all to all of us evenly, that each one of us is due that measure of love and is responsible for measuring out that helping of love out into the world. And I know that means me. I know that in my heart and in my mind, in my words and my deeds, I become ever more responsible for making sure that the words coming out of my life are out of my mouth, are based in love, based in integrity, based in that, that calmness of reason. And so for myself this week, I know that I am ever easier to take that time out when it's required to really engage the, the neocortex, that thinking and rational part of me that can allow myself to navigate with great love and great equanimity through the challenges in my life. And as it is true for me, I know it is true without question for everyone in this room. Each one of us can start right where we are and learn to become more loving and better communicators. And for this, I am simply grateful, simply grateful for being here in the presence of God each week, showing up as the faces and the hearts and the hands of the people in this room. And so in gratitude, I let it be. And together we say, and so it is. Thank you so much for being here today. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you happen to be in the Portland, Oregon area, we'd love to have you visit in person. The Portland Center for Spiritual Living is located at 6211 Northeast Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. We have inspirational services at 9 and 11 a.m. every Sunday. Our mission is to open hearts, ignite minds, and to make a difference. If you'd like to support our center and its podcasts, you can donate online at www.pcsl.us slash donate. Our website is also the place to learn more about what's going on at the center or to contact us. Allow us to become part of your extended community. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, you are most welcome at the Center for Spiritual Living.